Conversations. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. It's been a while. I feel like we say that every time. Maybe I should just stop saying it. You know, just that our regular interval. I think. This yeah, is. <laughs> we missed you though. We still miss you. So today it's me, Rahul, going to be working with Davo. Working. Working. Today. Work. We're in the workspace right now. Um, yeah. So we're going to be talking about hypertension. Super common garden variety hypertension is a condition that often gets relegated to a three-letter acronym on a past history during an admission note and mm-hmm. probably doesn't get paid the due attention it deserves. Great. And I think Darvall would agree that once you actually start to ask a couple of questions about it, it becomes clear that not many people understand how it works and all of the different effects it has on the body. Yeah, so it's a bit of a different podcast that Rahul has put together for us. So not so much case-based. We're going to be concentrating on the physiology and the pathophysiology. And instead of firing some kind of clinical scenarios at me, is going to fire some MCQs. Yeah, and we're going to try and turn this into one another one of our fateful multi-podcast topics. So this one is going to be focused mainly around actually how do you create a blood pressure in the body? So what are the normal physiological processes? And then some of the pathophysiology that goes towards hypertension and then a brief touch on the end organ effects before we do some MCQs. But in the other podcast, we're going to do a bit more clinical stuff. So how do you move past the three-letter acronym on your past history? And also, I think what will tie nicely to this is how the different drugs work in treating hypertension and understanding their mechanisms. And once you have that, you'll have a really good groundwork for managing blood pressure beyond the slapping on a GTN patch and calling it a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So should we get stuck into it? Sounds good. I think the easiest thing is always to start with an introduction and it's so you don't really need much of an introduction to it. It's super common. Yeah. Even you can say hypertension to anyone in the medical community and they'll know or anyone in the non-medical community and they'll know what you're talking about. Yeah. Unlike, I don't know, dense deposit disease where you <laughs> look at you the quizzing look. So it's an important disease as well. It's not only common, it's important. Uh, so 9.4 million deaths per year across the world are thought to be attributed to hypertension. Yeah. It's super common, and I think the, the point that is worth making here is there's this kind of bias or phenomenon in medicine. When something is common, people assume that it's simple mm. um, and, and that they understand it and that it's boring, um, mm. but that doesn't necessarily map on at all. And much like diabetes, everyone thinks they know what they're doing and they know how to manage it, but very few people are actually managing it properly. Mm. Uh, and I, myself included, I feel like hypertension is certainly in that basket. Yeah, and it's just so consequential. I mean, it doubles your risk of coronary disease, doubles your risk of heart failure, doubles your risk of stroke, renal failure, peripheral arterial disease. And there's a common theme amongst those things. Those things are the biggest causes of morbidity and mortality in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, undoubtedly important. Don't trap into that. Uh, don't fall into that fallacy yet. Yeah. So, so I guess... Moving on to the physiology now, right? So you yeah. Can take us through how the physiology of hypertension works. We'll start with the usual, how do you actually create a blood pressure in the body? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. even this part is quite hard to understand. So let's start with the question. Davo, what are the two main hemodynamic contributors to arterial pressure? So one, I think, would be your heart, a very important organ in the body, I admit, um, and how much that heart is working. So like the cardiac output, how much... Uh, blood it's pumping out that would be factor number one and factor number two would be what it's pumping against so the system uh, systemic vascular resistance that's 100 correct yep yeah. you have indeed so cardiac output represents flow the amount of liquid that's flowing and systemic vascular resistance is what it's flowing through mm-hmm. and this ties nicely i always think of ohm's law which for those of you who did physics in high school would know about uh, it's v equals ir that is to say voltage 
is equal to current times resistance. Mm. And here, the sort of mapping onto that is pressure, which is your blood pressure. You know, the what is driving the fluid to go from one point to another mm -hmm. is equal to the flow of the fluid times the resistance that, that fluid is facing. So V is pressure, I is flow or current, and R is resistance in both situations. Yeah. And Davo, another question. So what's the most important contributor to resistance in the systemic circulation? Yeah, so there's lots of things that impact on that resistance, but the most important thing uh, is how big the vessel is basically in the cross-sectional area. And just a small difference in cross-sectional area can massively increase the resistance. That's right. And increased resistance means increased pressure. And I think there's so there's sort of multiple things that go into resistance. We'll talk about them later. But the main thing that changes in the human body is cross-sectional area. The yeah, length yeah. of your vessel and the viscosity, how thick your blood is, doesn't change a lot. Length pretty much doesn't change at all. So that's the main lever that the body has to kind of play around with your blood mm. pressure. What's that cross-sectional area? So that's a really key concept to understand hypertension. So it's worth repeating. Cross-sectional area is king when trying to modify blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so then we can, now that we have these basic factors, we've got uh, resistance, we've got cardiac output, uh, we can start to, or, or flow, we can start to talk about how they work. So resistance, as I said, relates to three main factors. It's determined by three main factors. That is vessel length, so how long the tube is, how thick the fluid flowing through the tube is, and how big the tube is in terms of radius or cross-sectional area. And often when I'm thinking pathophysiologically, whether it's pulmonary hypertension or systemic hypertension, mm -hmm. I think of all of the blood vessels as just one tube because mm -hmm. then it becomes very easy to imagine a tube that's getting bigger or smaller mm -hmm. rather than imagine. But, you know, effectively, that's what it is. And then when we think about cardiac output, we've sort of got two levers that are uh, contributing to that, which themselves are influenced by a whole bunch of other things. But it's heart rate how often per minute your heart is actually beating, yep. and then stroke volume, yep. how much is it putting out with each beat? And I like the cardiology is very simple when it starts <laughs> out. You know, that's all you have to think about. Mm -mm -mm. So yeah, cardiac output, heart rate, by stroke volume. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about systemic vascular resistance, we talked about how cross-sectional area changes, yeah, yeah. and that's what changes your resistance. But which part of your blood vessels, Davor, are the part that are actually changing uh, to cause that change in cross-sectional area and in change in resistance? Yeah, so it's the arterial tone, right? So the blood vessels are basically big muscles. They've all got muscles in them, and that muscle can uh, can contract or relax, and that's what directly impacts that cross-sectional area. That's right. And so the the part that when Dava, the key part of what Dava said there was arteriolar turn, tone. So arterioles are the slightly smaller arteries that are between 100 to 400 microns big. So pretty small. And they're the main ones that can change in size that mm. really contribute to resistance. That's interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's not, it's not your big ones. It's not your... It's not your aorta. Aorta. Yeah, aorta. It's None of the ones you can see, really. It's yeah, all the small yeah. ones that are yeah, doing all yeah, this contracting yeah, and changing. Yeah. They're living organisms that are sort of moving on their own. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. So then, so that's vascular resistance. And what are the things that contribute to stroke volume? Remember that stroke volume was one of the components of cardiac output, mm -hmm. the other being heart rate. Heart rate, yeah. So this is half or one of the contrib contributors to cardiac output, stroke volume. So it's related to three factors. One is contractility, like how strongly the heart is contracting. Um, Preload, so how much is in the heart when it's pumping out. And afterload, uh, what it's pumping against. 
Is that yeah. right? Yep. And these are three like crucial factors in cardiac physiology, and they're all actually really complicated, contractility especially. Yeah. Um, but I like to think preload is essentially the stretch on the myocytes before they contract, so yeah. how big the heart can stretch to. And afterload is how much work the heart has to um, pump against, essentially your pressure, whether that's due to aortic stenosis or just hypertension, but that's afterload. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and all of these things, so vascular resistance, contractility, preload, afterload, they're all interdependent. And I think that's a really common theme you're going to see through this podcast, mm-hmm. that all these things tie to each other and mm-hmm. it makes it complicated. But they're also tied to the autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. your fight or flight response, which is uh, what regulates a lot of these reactions. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess everything does come back to the brain eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so understanding some of the things we've talked about here will become crucial later on when we do the drug podcast and the treatment podcast because then you'll realize what these drugs are actually doing to regulate blood pressure yeah yeah so just to summarize that one more time um so arterial pressure is related to two things cardiac output and peripheral resistance Um, and peripheral resistance is mostly a function of uh, cross-sectional area which is a function of arteriolar tone Um, And then going back to cardiac output, so that's a function of heart rate and stroke volume. Heart rate is pretty easy to understand, how how fast is your heart beating. Stroke volume is a factor of contractility, preload and afterload. Yeah, you can think of it as a nice little flow diagram of the individual components. So let's ask a few more questions then. I'm going to talk about readings for blood pressure that you'll get, understanding the different ways you can measure blood pressure. So Davo, what is the mean arterial pressure? So that's MAP. <laughs> Very good. Man, he just answers every question right. You can't stump this guy. Not wrong. <laughs> Not wrong. So MAP, you'll hear some people talking about it in the hospital. Uh, it is. It stands for mean arterial pressure. And it's the average, the um, arithmetic average, arith- arithmetical? Arithmetic? Arithmetic chip on that one. <laughs> <laughs> average of the pressure in the vasculature during the whole of the cardiac cycle. Remember the cardiac cycle is obviously a dynamic changing thing. And so the pressure is changing. And so we take the average between systole and diastole. And when we're thinking about MAP, sorry, it's the geometric mean. (laughs) When we think about MAP, we have to think about the fact that the diastole usually takes up two thirds of the cardiac cycle Mm -hmm. and systole only takes up one third. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about the mean, they're not gonna contribute equally. Diastole is gonna contribute more because you're in there two thirds. And so the way you actually calculate the mean arterial pressure is to take two-thirds of your diastolic pressure and add that to one-third of your systolic pressure. Mm -hmm. And that'll give you the average of your pressure through the whole cycle. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to what the systolic and diastolic pressure are. What is the systolic pressure, Darwell? So that's the maximum aortic pressure after an injection of blood. Yeah. So absolute peak. It's your peak pressure. Peak pressure. And your diastolic pressure, Darwell? So the lowest pressure before the ventricles eject blood. Yeah, it's kind of like your resting state when the blood's just chilling in your vessels. And then there's one other term that you'll hear, and it's called the pulse pressure. Mm. What does that mean, Davo? So that's the difference between systolic and diastolic pressure. Okay, so in your standard 120 on 80, you've got your 120, which is your systolic pressure. Yeah. 80, which is your diastolic pressure, so your resting sort of blood pressure. You've got your mean pressure, which is going to be about two thirds of yeah, 80 right. plus what's that? Yeah. <laughs> it's about a hundred. Um, and then your pulse pressure, which is going to be the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah. So just to bring something that's somewhat clinically relevant to this physiology based podcast, why is pulse pressure important? I actually never really think about it in my clinical day to day life. Should I? 
Um, there's only a few conditions that really uh, are important for pulse pressure. So it tells you about some valvulopathies. So it can tell you about aortic stenosis, uh, how yeah, severe yeah, it is. Of course, of course. Because it's going to drop. That's right. Pulse pressure narrows in aortic stenosis. And again, it's because during systole, the valve, the aortic valve is very tight. Mm-hmm. And so it actually can't eject enough blood to get a mm-hmm. maximal big pressure. But the diastolic pressure, that's determined by really your resting vascular tone or resistance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that stays about the same. Mm-hmm. And so the net difference between them narrows down. Mm-hmm. By the same token, with aortic regurgitation, you have this huge ejection, normal ejection of blood because the aortic valve is unrestricted. But then all of that blood falls back into the left ventricle at the end because you have this incompetent cool, yeah, aortic yeah. valve. Yeah, And so your pulse pressure gets really big. And then there's a few other things later on, uh, isolated systolic hypertension. Uh, we'll talk about that a bit later, um, but yeah, so it's 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 helpful to look at. Uh, yeah, good good thing for OSCEs actually. Like aortic stenosis and and regurgitation are common, oh, like short cases. It is my favorite because it's a marker of severity of aortic stenosis, yeah, narrow yeah. pulse pressure, and it's the easiest one. It's much easier to detect than say uh, reverse splitting of the second exactly, heart set. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah cool, that's, cool. All right, we'll talk about that on okay. some other podcasts but yeah another quick question as well for you Davil what's the main ion that drives intravascular volume the amount of blood you have in your vessels salt that's it nice easy so just remember from your first second year med school I remember pouring over physiology textbooks as I was known to do oh, yeah, that's what you were doing I in was, first and second uh, <laughs> med school <laughs> uh, yeah so salt follows water nice easy um, uh, sort of principle and so the more salt you have in your blood vessels water will be reabsorbed to maintain that osmotic balance osmotic yeah, balance yeah. okay so we've spoken about the different terms of blood pressure now we can talk about intravascular volume double we've spoken said that salt is a primary determinant of intravascular volume or extracellular volume that includes your interstitium mm-hmm. um, but how does that actually work so if you've got increased salt, you're going to increase water retention, which is going to mean your intravascular volume has gone up, which is going to increase your stroke volume because there's more blood in the heart, there's more preload, um, and that's going to increase your cardiac output. Is that right? That's beautiful, yeah. So coming back to our earlier principles, um, the the increased preload or, or stroke volume is determined by three things, afterload, contractility, and preload. I want you to kind of forget about contractility now because it's quite a card conscious concept, but preload is easy. You fill that ventricle up more because you have more blood in your vessels, uh, and so there's more blood going into the heart. And the natural reaction through the Frank Starling law is that as you get more stretched, you contract harder and you'll you'll have a higher cardiac. Forget effect. about contractility. Don't forget everything I just said. <laughs> I remember that. Um, <laughs> Now, that's the sort of easy explanation, but then I guess we're now working in this very complex biological system and all of it's interdependent. Um, So once you increase your cardiac output, suddenly you're filtering more sodium because there's more pressure in your glomerulus and your kidneys. Mm. We'll come to that, but suddenly you're now filtering more sodium and you actually, that feeds back and you decrease your... um, you decrease your stroke volume, you decrease your intravascular volume. So it's all a delicate feedback loop, but this is why it's so important that if you lose one of the organs that's needed in this process, either you develop severe heart failure Mm. or you develop severe kidney disease, Mm. you've messed up the balance that naturally occurs. So let's say in our previous example, you develop severe kidney disease. Well, now you've you've increased your blood volume, you've got more salt on board. Let's say you've just eaten a salty bag of chips, but your kidney can't get rid of that salt. Mm. And so now you've got increased blood volume, and despite increasing your glomerular pressure, your kidneys don't work. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got hypertension, you've got fluid overload. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same way, I mean, if you have heart disease, 
you are not perfusing your kidneys because you've got such a low cardiac output. Yeah, yeah. A kidney's natural response in that situation is to think, uh-oh, you know, we've been bitten by a tiger and we're dehydrated, yeah, we're yeah. devolumed. Yeah, yeah. And so it starts to increase mineralocorticoids. Again, we'll talk about that later. And suddenly your blood volume goes up, which makes it even harder for your heart to pump mm-hmm. and you, you'll end up in a trap cycle. So yeah. it's all interdependent is my, my point here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was intravascular volume, probably one of the simpler ones over this top, um, but it does get more complicated. Let's talk about the autonomic nervous system, Darvo. I'm going to call to arms for you, <laughs> brain boy. Um, which of alpha-1 and beta-1 receptors causes peripheral vasoconstriction? So alpha-1 does, and it's triggered by a noradrenaline. And my mnemonic for that is if you think of the symbol for alpha, it's like a little fish thing. I imagine that in my head as like a drawstring being tightened on the blood vessel. Yeah, and it causes peripheral vasoconstriction when yeah. it's activated. Yeah, yeah. So the autonomic nervous system. Well, do you want to start telling us about that, Darvel? No. Okay, cool. So it's mediated, I mean, in this situation, a lot of it's mediated by your adrenergic reflexes. Uh So this is sort of your fight or flight response. And they are largely, um, a lot of the work here is done by the alpha and beta receptors, uh, which are triggered by catecholamines. Catecholamines, we mean adrenaline, noradrenaline, those neuroreceptors, or those uh, neurotransmitters that sort of trigger those uh, receptors. So we're only going to talk about alpha and beta, and we're going to talk about alpha 1, alpha 2, beta 1, beta 2, and that's it. It's, there's many more, but we'll leave it at that. For keep this. it simple. Everything yeah. here is a simplification of what really happens, which yeah. gets, you know, everything, all of this stuff crosses over. But this is what you need to know, and, and this works as a functional model for clinical yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. So alpha receptors. I think of them mainly as being triggered by noradrenaline. The truth is that they are a little bit triggered by adrenaline, but I think noradrenaline is your main alpha receptor agonist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you got two alpha receptors, alpha one and alpha two. Yeah. So can you tell me what alpha one does, Double? So that was kind of what I was saying before. It's like the drawstring being tightened on the blood vessel. Um, it causes vasoconstriction and sodium reabsorption in the kidneys, right? Yep, that's yeah. right. And so why would vasoconstriction be important? Going back to our original. Yeah, so good callback. Um, so as we were saying before, so the main mechanism of total peripheral resistance, um, which is a really important contributor to your blood pressure, is arteriolar tone. So this alpha-1 gets those tiny little arterioles that we don't think about or see that much. They constrict. Squeezes them down. Up goes the BP. Yeah. And so that's your, I mean, someone gets stressed out and their blood pressure goes up. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and so what about alpha-2? This is sort of a much less uh, acknowledged one. So it's an antihypertensive. So it inhibits uh, noradrenaline secretion and so therefore kind of inhibits alpha-1 by, you mm. know, with an intermediary step and it reduces blood pressure. It creates so, a little negative feedback loop so that these are regulated. Yeah, yeah. So I think the, the way to remember this is alpha-1 and beta, uh, so alpha and beta both to do with blood pressure um, and the alpha one and the beta one so the ones they increase the blood pressure and the twos alpha two and beta two both drop the blood pressure yeah i think that's a really nice um simple method of thinking about it and and so we've spoken about the alpha ones let's come to the betas um so davo this is your ex- topic of expertise being a beta yourself um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so <laughs> beta receptors yeah, he's packing up his things and uh, such a beta move uh, so beta receptors uh, again I think of them mainly being triggered by adrenaline as opposed to noradrenaline again not true totally but uh, it's an easy simple way of thinking about it and this works in the ICU this is how most ICU people think about it mm-hmm. so beta um, you've got adrenaline you've got beta 1 and beta 2 
And you said before that beta ones, the ones increase blood pressure. Yeah. How does that happen with beta? Double? So it's all to do with contractility. So that really key part of uh, stroke volume, which is therefore a key part of cardiac output, which is therefore a key part of blood pressure. Let's go back. Um, so yeah, as we've said many times, blood pressure is kind of the end result of all these different type of mechanisms. Um, and in beta one is all to do with contractility. That's right. Okay. And they also have this sort of other effect, which they cause renin release from the kidneys, oh, yeah. which causes salty absorption. So again, increased stroke volume. But mainly I want you to think about beta one as increasing contractility. And we're going to talk about this with drugs later, but what's the drug that then would make sense to be work, working as an antihypertensive using the beta pathways? Uh, so beta blocker. Yeah. Truth is they're actually pretty bad antihypertensives, but mm-hmm. anyway, that's traditionally where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other interesting thing clinically here and why I wanted to talk about beta receptors causing salt reabsorption and just keep this somewhere in the back of your mind is that when you give beta blockers, it interferes with your ability to test for something like primary hyperaldosteronism because mm. it's changing that pathway. Just keep that in your mind. We'll talk about that. It's the same later. with like almost all antihypertensives. Yeah. But. And that just goes again to how interdependent these systems are. Even though we think of them as only affecting one thing, it's sort of this shower cascade across the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we talk about beta one increases contractility causes uh, hypertension or increased cardiac output yeah what about beta 2 now this should be the opposite somehow causing anti-hypertension how does that happen yeah so it, it causes smooth muscle relaxation and dilation so it reduces uh you know that um area of the blood vessels that's right oh, well it increases the area so increase increases the area of the blood vessels right. therefore reduces the blood pressure and again just another link here what's a beta 2 agonists we use are um salbutamol for asthma mm-hmm. and the bronchioles are a bit like blood vessels in terms mm-hmm. of they have smooth muscle in their walls mm-hmm. and what does a beta 2 agonist do in asthma it causes bronchodilation it also causes peripheral vasodilation and i want you to also keep in mind that that is opposite to alpha 1 and that'll become more relevant again when we talk about a secondary cause of hypertension yeah, not yeah. using beta blockers now that's pheochromocytoma we'll come to that later all right so just to, because that's a, that was a lot of words and numbers so Alpha and beta both have to do with blood pressure. Um, so the alpha one and the beta one increase blood pressure. Alpha one does that by vasoconstriction. Beta one does that by contractility. Beta two and alpha two both reduce blood pressure. So alpha two does that by inhibiting noradrenaline secretion and therefore inhibiting alpha one. Um, and beta two does that primarily by causing smooth muscle relaxation. Yeah, beautiful. Good summary. And all of that is the autonomic nervous system. Yeah, it's yeah, neurologically yeah, triggered. Yeah. So let's talk about some baroreflexes that actually trigger these, these reactions. So baroreflexes work on your blood pressure on a minute-to-minute basis, right? So they're very short-sighted, very just, you know, what's going on right now? Let's fix that now. Um, hormones, and we'll talk about those later, work on a longer basis. Uh, so how does a baroreflex work, a baroreceptor work, double? So it's basically a stretch receptor, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a way of a blood pressure to know how much volume there is in there, whether it's undervolumed or mm. overvolumed, and then that reacts to things. So the main one that I know about is in the carotid. Yeah, so you've got some in the carotid and the aortic arch, and that's 100% right. They're just sitting in the vessel wall saying, how stretched is this vessel? Mm-hmm. And that tells you how much your systolic force is pushing that vessel away. Mm-hmm. And the more stretch the less sympathetic flow you get, the less of that alpha one, beta one sort of reaction you get. A lot of things like that in the body where a signal is constantly being sent. And then when you have uh, some kind of 
force on that signal, it just drops. So mm. your, your baroreceptors are constantly sending a signal and then when they stretch, they reduce the signal, mm. in, which increases the sympathetic drive. And it just seems a little counterintuitive to our human brains. Uh, yeah, let decreases it. That's right. Card. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. And and this is the thing. It's kind of we think of buttons. You press yeah. a button and an action occurs. Yeah, yeah. This is a button that's always being pressed. Really good way and when you let go of yeah. the button, then yeah, it's um, like Lost. Yeah. <laughs> don't know you if, don't watch Lost? No, Where they have to press lost. a button like every thirty seconds. That's what the oh, really? bar receptor does. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like Lost. There you go. <laughs> good one. <laughs> so there's an interesting. I remember working with a company at one point in time that was um, trying to. So what happens in hypertensive patients? This is a short minute to minute basis. Uh, and in hypertensive patients, that resets. Your sort of window resets and you get this baroreceptor resetting. And what this company was trying to do was make a sticker patch that caused vibration over your baroreceptors to sort of trigger them and start, and reset this whole baroreceptor reflex, which is really interesting. It didn't work, but, you know, it was really interesting. <laughs> uh, I think it caused, you know, some changes in blood pressure. But again, your body resets around that, and so they weren't actually able to make a permanent change. Um, There's another kind of, kind of clinical... Uh, thing to help you remember how baroreflexes work. Um, it's very common in clot retrieval that you have to put a stent in the carotid to open it up because they've got carotid disease. Um, and, and in that moment when the interventionists open up the stent, the blood pressure drops pretty hard mm. because there's less sympathetic uh, activation. That's really interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. So, so you do you have people who sort of yeah, blood pressure crashes on the table and you don't Yeah, when well, you tell the anesthetist, you're like, the blood pressure is going to drop. That's, what, that's so cool. Um, and they've got, got to have their stuff ready. Yeah. And another example of this, let's just give you more examples. But, um, you know, when you're doing a vagal maneuver or some oh, yeah. AVNRT and you massage their carotids, uh, that's exactly what you're doing. And aside from actually massaging the atherosclerosis into their brain, <laughs> brain as well. <laughs> does that actually work? Yeah. Massaging the carotids? Yeah, yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. It actually does. <laughs> I've, I've done it. Uh, the other thing that works is a digital rectal exam. <laughs> is a published case report of the... Oh, my God. <laughs> so i think the overall message of the autonomic nervous system here and this is kind of a generally with cardiovascular disease these people are switched on to a low level of fight or flight response all the time mm-hmm. you know, they have increased markers of sympathetic function which has all these sort of other um, effects on the body but yeah that's the autonomic nervous system Let's talk a bit more about the hormonal side. You'll hear about the neurohormonal uh, axis of hypertension. We've talked about neurological. Let's talk about hormonal. Yeah. So what is the overall effect of, of the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system on the body? So that system is activated by the body where it's like my organs are not getting perfused enough and I need to increase my pressure. Mm. So it and increases arterial pressure. That's right. And it does that through so many different mechanisms. Increasing your blood volume by yeah. increasing sodium retention, we've yeah. talked about, and thus you get more fluid retention. Mm-hmm. But it also has vasoconstricting effects. Um, and this is a more long-term regulator of blood pressure as opposed to that minute-by-minute neurological sort of management. This is long-term resetting. And because a lot of these processes, hormones in general, are slow. They work over hours, days. And so it's not going to be a short, quick minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so we said that the two main mechanisms here in the RAS, renin angiotensin aldosterone system, are vasoconstriction and sodium retention. Mm. What's primarily responsible for the vasoconstriction in this system out of the angiotensin and the aldosterone double? So, as, as all of this is, is grossly oversimplified, but angiotensin 2 is more responsible for vasoconstriction and aldosterone is more responsible for sodium retention so re- responsible for volume and it is nice and easy actually they put it in the name for you 
angiotensin is tensing your angios. It's making your blood vessels nice. tense. Yeah, there you go. I'd never thought about that. Haven't you? That's <laughs> how I remember it. Though. Aldosterone is steroid. Your dosterone is steroid. <laughs> <laughs> your aldos. <laughs> um, Perfect. So... Renin, when so renin is the driver behind all of this, and again, yeah. it's nicely named because renin comes from the renals, comes from the kidneys. Mm. So, when do the kidneys produce renin, Davil? So, basically, when there's decreased pressure to the glomerulus. So, more so than any other organ in your body, your glomerulus is exquisitely sensitive to uh, when there's enough blood flow or not enough blood flow. And if they're starting to feel like they're getting starved, they're a bit hyperperfused, they pump out the renin. Is that right? That's right. So when there's decreased blood flow, the juxtaglomerular complex suddenly goes, hey, there's not as much salt being reabsorbed anymore. They're very fine sensors in there. And then the kidneys go, oh, we must have been bitten by a tiger. We mm. are. We do not have enough fluid it's on board right now. It's interesting to think that all of this stuff would have evolved, you know, in the savannah, and aimed at like keeping 20 year olds alive yeah and, like, completely maladaptive and now like, it's just killing 50 to 80 year olds yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> evolution doesn't care about 50 to 80 years, yeah. very much so that so renin being increased increases your sympathetic signaling and remember there's a bit of cross talk here between that autonomic and the neurohormonal it really is united but we're simplifying it here so let's talk about angiotensin 2 this is the renin and then to angiotensin sort of component of the system. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a flow chart here, a verbal flow chart. Renin gets released. That cleaves something called angiotensinogen, mm-hmm. i.e. the thing that generates angiotensin, angiotensinogen. And when it gets cleaved, it forms angiotensin 1. Mm-hmm. Angiotensin 1 does some things here and there, but and maybe that's becoming more important, but that goes up to the lungs and gets co- converted by angiotensin converting enzyme. It's easy into angiotensin 2. Mm-hmm. And then angiotensin 2 is the one we think of as the more active bad boy. That goes around to AT1 and AT2 receptors yeah. and binds to them and causes various effects. Mm-hmm. So I think an important thing to remember there is that angiotensin, AT1 and AT2 are both triggered by angiotensin 2, mm-hmm. not angiotensin 1. Angiotensin yeah. 1 is really your intermediate step. And ACE is not angiotensin 2. It's the enzyme that cleaves it. So when you're an ACE inhibitor, which is a drug I'm sure you've all heard about, is not directly inhibiting uh, the hormone. It's stopping the production of the hormone, right? Yeah. yeah. There you go. So what are AT1 receptors? So we finally got this angiotensin 2. It's gone out. It's bound to AT1 and AT2. What does AT1 actually do from there, Davil? So it's a similar way to remember it to the alpha and the beta receptors we were talking about before. So AT1 receptors cause vasoconstriction and atherosclerosis is a kind of pathophysiological uh, effect and AT2 is just the opposite. Yep, it's nice. Um, so here, let me give you some clinical examples and these become more pertinent when we do our later podcasts. But if you have a renin-secreting renin tumor of the kidney, that will often present with hypertension. Hmm. I think they're called Wilms tumors, if I'm not mistaken. It's a childhood tumor. Another example of renin being triggered and causing hypertension is in renovascular disease. So this is where you have a stenosis in one of your renal arteries and that causes a lack of blood pressure to that kidney and that kidney again goes into overdrive saying we're losing blood from a tiger bite uh, and starts to increase renin secretion and triggers all the rest of this and you'll get hypertension in someone with renovascular disease. Alrighty, so what are we talking about next? Aldosterone. Yeah, so we covered angiotensin, now we got part two of the system, mm. aldosterone. Which is focused on like volume and salt and fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So angiotensin causes the secretion of aldosterone. It goes to your adrenal glands where aldosterone is made. 
and it says, hey, produce some of this stuff. It seems like we don't have enough blood in the in the body. Yeah, yeah. And so then what happens then? What does aldosterone send out to do? So it goes to the kidneys and basically says, hold on to the salt. We need this stuff. Mm, we can't be giving it away. We need yeah, this yeah, stuff yeah, bad. Yeah. And it does that in the collecting duct. Okay? Right, right, right. So I always think of um, aldosterone as swapping, swapping salt for potassium. So it puts more potassium into the collecting duct and you mm-hmm. pee that out and it hangs on to sodium because you kind of always have to give something away to get something yeah, back. Which is why spironolactone, which inhibits this process, pumps up your potassium. That's right. Um, so there is a condition called primary hyperaldosteronism. It's actually probably very common in people who have resistant hypertension. And very it's very underdiagnosed. Yeah. yeah. And you probably have a small tumor in one of your adrenals that's producing too much aldosterone and pulling in too much uh, salt. And often these people will have low potassiums. That's one of the sort of triggers you can tell that someone's mm. like this. And Common syndrome. All of this goes back to our blood volume mechanism of hypertension. So run me through again. If I have aldosterone reabsorbing sodium and increasing my blood volume double, how's that actually making me hypertensive? So that's uh, basically going to increase your cardiac output and your stroke volume, um, it's primarily through preload. So to increase your preload, uh, which increases your... Uh, stroke volume, which is going to increase your cardiac output, which is going to increase your blood pressure. Beautiful. Now, the interesting thing, again, the gross oversimplification here, is that uh, aldosterone causes all these other pleiotropic or other effects in the body. So it causes fibrosis in the heart and kidneys. It causes endothelial dysfunction, so dysfunction of the lining of the blood vessels. And as a result, you know, empirically, it just causes increased death, uh, mm. increased cardiac death. Mm-mm. And that's why aldosterone antagonists are so super effective in heart failure. It's not just that they're causing decreased blood volume. They're doing all these other crazy things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just the same for all these hormones mm. and systems that we've grossly oversimplified. So we're going to move on a little bit to vascular mechanisms of hypertension because the blood vessels are actually we think of them as kind of these simple tubes but they're actually kind of organs in and of themselves they're not passive observers in all this process yeah throwing in their two two cents um so what's the biggest contributor to resistance in the circulation double and why so we've said this a few times basically arterioles and their diameter so why is their diameter such an important contributor to resistance and blood pressure because even a very small increase or decrease in diameter can massively increase or decrease their blood pressure that's right so it's inversely proportional to the fourth power of the radius that means you put the radius to the power of four every time and that is what changes your blood pressure yeah. such a and big that's an ohm's law right uh, no, this is in the determinant of resistance. Oh, yeah, yeah, resistance yeah, yeah. is then in Ohm's laws. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the other things that we remember that are contributory to resistance, but probably not that important in the human body, are length and viscosity of the blood. Viscosity of the blood, pretty fixed. Length, almost certainly fixed. Um, viscosity does change a little bit, but that's really in the weeds. Yeah. Um, and we spoke about how it's the inverse fourth power of radius. So that's small changes in radius, big changes in resistance. Um so radius uh, goes down with inflammation and fibrosis of the peripheral vasculature and again i think this is where my previous model of having a just not thinking of the little tubes but actually think of a big tube as it gets scarred and fibrosed it becomes a smaller and smaller tube yeah your resistance is it's another feedback loop so hypertension causes that and then the tubes get smaller get smaller and you get more hypertension yeah that's yeah and so compliance is also really important this is where the vessel being its own sort of organ comes in so the the blood vessels can stretch and comply 
But as they get calcified and stiff with aging, mm. they don't do that so much anymore. So they lose their own little regulatory mechanism. Mm. And that causes something very characteristic that you see in older people, which is called isolated systolic hypertension. Mm. So these are people who have calcified stiff tubes. They really are falling into the traditional model we think of, of mm. just having a stiff tube mm. pipe. Mm. And that means every time the heart pumps, it pumps all of this blood volume into a stiff tube that doesn't move outwards, doesn't get bigger. Mm. And so the systolic pressure gets really high. Mm. But then when the, the heart's relaxing and the, all that blood flow is sort of settling down into diastole, the tube is staying at the same dia- diameter. So the diastolic pressure actually kind of goes a little bit lower. Because so it's the not pulse true. pressure is going to be huge. That's right, yeah. Pulse yeah. pressure is high. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on top of that, the vascular endothelium has this complex feedback where it is actually vasodilating and constricting in different um, disease states, and that's loss. We know that that endothelium, the normal responses, become deranged in hypertension. And so yeah, it's just the, not... The endothelium, we won't get into it here, but the endothelium is, is really crucial to atherosclerosis and hypertension. And as we said, it's not it's not a passive observer here. It's in the thick of it. It's causing its own problems and a real target for intervention as well. The endothelium has really come, in, come into the spotlight really because a lot of people describe COVID as an endothelial disease. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Know that. And that's why, so COVID causes endothelial dysfunction, inflammation, and that's why it causes all the lung problems because the endothelium of your lung gets messed up. But that's why it also causes stroke, heart attacks, thrombosis, because it's messing with the endothelium in the blood vessels. So a lot of people describe it as an endothelial virus. Interesting. Yeah. So, we, so we've covered how your body creates blood pressure, um, and we've talked about the uh, nervous, hormonal, and also vascular, uh, mechanism. vascular mechanisms that that happens and, and how that process can kind of get deranged. Um, so the next thing we're going to talk about is is kind of what those, uh, when that process is deranged and you've got hypertension, what that actually causes on an end organ level, how it creates problems. Yeah, and there's a few organs that I think are really important to think about here. The truth is that high blood pressure, given that every organ in your body has blood vessels in it, it will affect every organ. And that includes things like the eyes, the nose, but the nose. Um, I just thought of nose, nose bleeds. <laughs> the nose organ. Yeah, the nose organ. Hey, ENT surgeons will be very disappointed yeah. what saying right now. Um, so, but let's talk about the four main ones. That's going to be the heart, the brain, the kidneys, and the peripheral vessels. All right. In order of how much Rahul cares about it. <laughs> The heart. Uh, <laughs> step one. So heart disease is the most common cause of death in people who are suffering hypertension. Uh, and hypertension itself... This is the most common cause of death, so that's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You're the most common cause of death in, say, people who have... Um, no, but like across the board. It's the I know, common cause but if we were talking about rheumatoid arthritis... Oh, wait, heart disease. Probably. Still the most common cause. Kidney disease, heart disease. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Having hypertension predisposes you to having a thick heart. It predisposes your coronary arteries to becoming diseased and atherosclerotic. Mm -hmm. It causes microvascular disease all over the place, but in the heart as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it causes arrhythmias. Atrial fibrillation, the most common proximate cause of atrial fibrillation, is hypertension. Yeah. And I think there's a few key things I want to talk about here. First, left ventricular hypertrophy, or the changes in the myocardium due to hypertension. And you get a really, with hypertension, you get a really high pressure load. And remember, your heart is the poor little fella who's having to press against that pressure load. So it's mm. like suddenly putting 150 kilograms on the um, bench press, and you've got this little heart that's now having to get big. And pretty soon, it's looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> And all of that really, I mean, if you want to get into the physiological mechanism of how that occurs, it's about something called Laplace's Law. 
Laplace's law relates wall tension to pressure, radius, and wall thickness. And what your heart is doing, or what your body's always trying to do, is maintain wall tension the same. This, by the way, also applies in the aorta and a bunch of other places, and mm-hmm. explains things like aneurysms, dilation, wide radius increases. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you've got this, suddenly this pressure goes up, and in order to maintain wall tension, the response is to hypertrophy the, ves- uh, the heart wall. Now that's fine, and it works pretty well to keep your cardiac output going. It means your heart doesn't sort of just blow out and yep. become really high radius. Gets you, gets you through the... The target days yeah. pass on your genes, and then you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, so suddenly now this wall's really thick, and then one of the big problems you have, and, and this is one of the biggest problems in cardiology today that no one has been able to solve, but you get impaired relaxation. Mm. And so you can't fill up with blood. Your preload can't get bigger. You can't fill up with blood. And if you can't fill up with blood, well, you can't pump blood. And you'll see something called heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. It actually probably makes up about 50% of people with heart failure. Hef-pef. Hef-pef. Which I, f- I really feel like has only been recognized, at least outside of cardiology, like very recently. Yeah, like and we just even in cardiology. Um, I wasn't taught about it in med school at all, really. Maybe I wasn't listening, but... No, no, I would say that's 100% correct. You weren't listening. Yeah, yeah, I definitely was not listening. <laughs> no, yeah. I must have taught anything. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that even in people who have traditional systolic classic ejection fraction is down, heart failure, the first thing that goes off in them is their relaxation is in bed, mm-hmm. and then they develop mm-hmm. the rest of it. Um, As an aside, we'll, we'll talk about this in more another day, but... How good are echoes at picking that up? Is that E slash E? Picking it up is really an art because all of those things change with time and there is no single number that can tell you what's going on. Um, This is really in the weeds about the echo parameters that look at relaxation. Um, But we look at how fast the heart moves back out. So how the velocity at which the heart relaxes and that becomes impaired in people as they get older comes impaired in people who have heart disease, comes impaired in people who have hypertension. And it's one of the earliest markers we have that something is going wrong. Mm-hmm. But you need to inter- interpret that in the totality of the evidence. You cannot just look at one number and say that that's the problem. Um, yeah, I know. I, love <laughs> I was numbers. very disappointed to find that out. Um, so yeah, so relaxation becomes impaired. The heart muscle is stiff, thick, fibrosed. And as it becomes impaired, it can no longer relax and allow blood in there without becoming a really high pressure. And suddenly the whole everything's bolted and you're, you're in trouble. Now, the important part is that this in its early stages can be reversed by treating hypertension. And so it's vital you pick up on this and vital you treat it. And I've seen so many countless patients who are breathless to the point they can't work 20 meters. Why? Uncontrolled hypertension until the age of 70. Didn't take mm. their meds, didn't mm. prescribe the right meds. You know, people didn't know about hypertension. And now these people can't walk and there is nothing that you can do to help them. I have one patient on the ward right now mm. who has such severe hypertensive heart disease that she's always on oxygen. But if we drop her blood pressure too much because of a separate mechanism I won't talk about, we drop her um, volume too much, she goes hypotensive. And she's now going to have one of the highest risk surgeries I've ever seen where they're going to try and go into her heart, chop out, a bunch mm, of the muscle mm. and replace her mitral valve again because of a different sort of mechanism but it's led to this and there's I I would be very surprised if she makes it through this operational life and this is all just high blood pressure yeah yeah if um you know if she not not to blame her GP or whatever but mm-hmm. in an ideal world where like you know she was engaging with healthcare or whatever mm. and a GP managed to get onto that when she was like 35 40 her entire life would have would have been completely different. She'd have no problem now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we're going to talk... So that was the heart, and that's just really the tip of the iceberg there, but that's heart is obviously one of the most uh, affected organs by blood pressure. 
But the next one I think that's most commonly affected is brain. And most, that's right. Next most important Take one is brain. the silver. No, I'm going to let Davor Thanks. talk about that for some reason. He seems to have a, a mild interest in brain. Uh, yeah, so hypertension is the strongest risk factor for stroke. Um, it probably causes around 20 million strokes a year. Uh, and it causes both types of strokes. It causes ischemic strokes and hemorrhagic strokes. Um, and it, similar to the heart, it causes disease in both large vessels and medium-sized vessels and small vessels um, and can cause both type of strokes from everything. So it's just a disaster. Um, and similar to, to Rahul, in, in some senses, you get stuck in this loop once you've had a certain amount of hypertension. Um, so if you've got uh, carotid disease or intracranial atherosclerosis from hypertension, um, it then means you need to push your blood pressure pretty high to be continue perfusing your brain, which then um, causes this feedback loop, which is really bad for the patient and just means they're inevitably going to have a stroke of some sort. And I think at least partially, this is something I was reading about and it sort of occurred to me that this should be obviously true, is that the blood pressure is also a marker. As we talked about, the, you know, that the blood vessels is a feedback loop, that the more disease they are, the more likely they are to have blood pressure. So when you have high blood pressure, it's probably a marker that the blood vessels in the brain are a little bit stiff and damaged, which means they're more likely to bleed, means they're more likely to have, you know, become occluded. So it's all sort of tied together. But certainly there is a direct causative mechanism between having high blood pressure yeah. and having strokes. Yeah, it's a, and like all of these things, it's a negative feedback loop and same kind of thing. If, if the system worked as it should and these people had their blood pressure corrected, you know, in their 30s and 40s, they just wouldn't be in these horrible situations towards the end of their life. And I think Davo was telling me something really interesting. It's, there's a cognition and high blood pressure uh, link. Yeah, 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 yeah. So vascular dementia is a very common cause of dementia, obviously. And a really kind of major success of modern medicine um, is that the, the rates of dementia are going down. The prevalence is, I don't, the prevalence is probably going up but because the, everyone's aging, but the incidence is certainly lowering. Um, and that's almost certainly just because we are much, much better at managing blood pressure um, in kind of midlife, which has fantastic kind of long-term consequences for people. Yeah, so there seems to be a link between good midlife blood pressure control and a decline in late-life cognitive uh, issues. Yeah, yeah. And lastly, you have some more sort of a more, as opposed to these long-term chronic parts of hypertension, you have a more acute hypertensive problem. And uh, what's that, Darvel? So yeah, hypertensive encephalopathy or press, basically. Um, and that's when the, the blood pressure suddenly goes really high, um, way above what it's used to, and the blood pressure, um, the brain can no longer maintain kind of what we call cerebral autoregulation. It becomes a disease of the endothelium once more. And basically the endothelium becomes leaky, just um, fluid starts flowing out of it or leaking out of it. Um, and that can, can result in confusion, seizures is really common, um, and sometimes death. Super dangerous, yeah. So you see this kind of thing in like very acute kidney impairment, which can rocket your blood pressure up, um, or you can see in pregnancy is another another place that you can see, and they come in with seizures. Like pre preeclampsia is kind of on this spectrum of diseases. It's oh, kind of that general that. general pathophysiology. And again, yeah. preeclampsia, I believe, is thought to be a bit of an endothelial yeah, disease. Exactly, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, we'll talk about that in our clinical hypertension podcast that we'll make mm. in two years' time. <laughs> Keep an eye out for it. Uh, so that's the brain. Uh, the kidneys were sort of one of the other bigger players here, and we've spoken about them before. But they're both a target and a cause of hypertension. Mm -hmm. So they're a cause of hypertension by if when they become impaired, they reduce salt excretion. So they can't regulate your blood volume to decrease your cardiac output. Yeah. They 
increase renin and sympathetic overactivity because they think that things are going to hell in a handbasket and they start to trigger all these responses that are actually not made for this. Yeah. And then, you know, renovascular disease, uh, stenosis of the renal arteries from the hypertension can then drive that same process again. Um, but as you sort of are hypertensive, then you have an increase in your renal injury because you have just more systolic hypertension, which is essentially flogging your kidneys, flogging your glomerulus. And now that'll cause ischemic change in your um, preglomerular arterioles, which then leads to more hypoperfusion, more damage to the glomerulus through ischemia. But we've also got damage to the afferent glomerulus, which causes hyperfiltration, and then they become overfibrosed. Essentially, they're working too hard, and they just scar up in response. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, work, you push too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and as this all happens, the finely tuned mechanisms that kidneys also have to regulate, auto-regulate blood pressure, which mm-hmm. is really around constriction and vasodilation of the afferent and efferent glomerular arteries, which mm-hmm. are the ones that feed into the little glomerulus. So they become less able to do that. And again, that's a negative feedback because, or positive feedback because now they can't do that and they are now exposed to higher pressures which is causing more damage and they lose their ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And this is why albuminuria, which is essentially a leaky glomerulus, is an early marker of renal injury, but it's an incredibly strong indicator of vascular risk because mm-hmm. it's the trigger. It's a sign mm-hmm. someone has already started entering this death spiral. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Is that how you explain it to them? Like, they yeah. feel fine now. You have a tiny bit of protein in your yeah. urine and you're on a death spiral, sir. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like, I think I feel like we're going to move more towards finding these kind of markers. But when you, when you think about it, it's not really an early marker of renal injury. You're like, your kidneys are like pretty... Pretty injured by the time yeah. they start leaking yeah. albumin. I'm sure at a microscopic Dude. level, like things are already really off, bad. The, off yeah. the trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. And yeah, so our microalbuminuria is a massive cardiovascular risk factor. Massive. Mm, I'm sure it is because they're in the death spiral. And they're in the death spiral. <laughs> and lastly, we're going to talk about the peripheral arteries here as a consequence of hypertension. I think um, they're both a cause and a target of hypertension. <laughs> <laughs> Just looking at the looking at PowerPoint, there's like two lines. <laughs> yeah, really neglected the peripheral arteries. Um, yeah, they do some stuff. But I can I can riff. Um, all so right, off you go. Per- <laughs> peripheral arteries. As you get increased blood pressure, all of the vascular endothelial responses to blood pressure become deranged. <laughs> And again, just like those, um, and I guess they're the same, the uh, afferent and efferent glomerular arteries, um, all of those arteries, as they're exposed to blood pressure, become stiff, lose their ability to auto-regulate, and over time you'll develop that isolated systolic hypertension and actually atherosclerosis as well. Um, and so, and remember that in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterin system, angiotensin uh, actually causes, angiotensin 2 actually causes atherosclerosis through activation mm-hmm. of the AT1 receptor. Mm-hmm. And so all of your peripheral vessels are su- subject to this. They're caught getting atherosclerosed, becoming stiffer, and bl- uh, blood pressure is going up. And you're, you're ultimately, you can end up with symptomatic stenosis, claudication, you know, ultimately uh, ischemic toes, amputations. You're in that death, a good riff. death spiral. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This right. is what I do almost every day for yeah. a living. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's do some MCQs and see if we can take this all home, summarize it, make it feel very good for you. Mm-hmm. MCQ number one, Darwell. Which one of these factors does not directly directly contribute to stroke volume? So I've got four options here. A, preload. B, afterload. C, contractility. And E, <laughs> vascular resistance. Where's D, you ask? <laughs> Don't ask about the D. Um, <laughs> so... Um, so A certainly does so mm-hmm. preload so how loaded up your ventricle that definitely 
impact increases afterwards. how much your remember stroke volume is how much you're ejecting so preload if you have more in there you're going to eject more yeah afterload if you're pushing against more you're going to eject less Mm -hmm. contractility that's like integral to the whole thing how, how how much your heart actually contracts yeah so and then classically Rahul has done three ones that, <laughs> that contributed and the, the not answer is the last one <laughs> P um, vascular resistance yeah and so vascular resistance that's itself a terrible question thank you <laughs> it doesn't contribute directly to stroke volume um, vascular resistance in terms of how it causes blood pressure Remember, it actually causes, it works on that resistance component. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're dropping your cross-sectional area and you increase your resistance. But like all things, this is a feedback cycle loopy thing. So if you have increased um, venoconstriction, your veins are constricted, that'll actually increase the amount of blood that's going back to your heart and cause increased preload. And um, suddenly you'll have a increased stroke volume. Also, if your vascular resistance tightens down um, you will get increased afterload and that'll decrease your stroke volume hence why the which one of these does not directly contribute stroke volume so i would be so annoyed if that was in my exam yeah. <laughs> <Go> on. <laughs> okay mcq excellent mcq number two which one of these is the most important contributor to vascular resistance in the human body why uh, so one length of vessel B, viscosity of, of blood. <laughs> C, blood flow. And G, cross-sectional. <laughs> so we, we hammered this point home. If you've been listening at all, you would be aware that the answer is D, cross-sectional area. So length is fixed. Viscosity only changes minorly. And radius is inversely proportional to the fourth power, which means even... Sorry, sorry resistance, I should say. Well, I've written that wrong. Resistance is inversely proportional to the fourth power of radius. That's exactly right. So even a small change in cross-sectional area, massive differences in blood pressure. Yep. All right, cool. MCQ3. How does hypertension lead to left ventricular hypertrophy? Increased afterload causes thickening of the myocardium. B, increased preload causes thickening of the myocardium. C, increased sympathetic tone causes impaired relaxation. And D, decreased contractility causes forceful relaxation. Um, Should we give them like a second to think about it? <laughs> they probably can't remember what the answers were. The answer is A, increased afterload causes a thickening of the myocardium. And this actually comes back to, as I mentioned before briefly, Laplace's law, increased pressure. It's trying to balance out the wall tension. And one of the responses it has for that is to increase the thickness of the myocardium. An easier way to think about this is if you go to the gym and you do 100 bicep curls every day, then your biceps will eventually get bigger. If you increase the pressure that the heart has to work against, eventually the heart will get thicker and more muscle. Mm -hmm. Okay, Schwarzenegger heart syndrome. Now, MCQ number four. Where are the baroreceptors that trigger the increased sympathetic activity located and how do they work? Uh, so A, they're located in descending aorta and increase sympathetic activity when not stretched. B, uh, located in carotids and aortic arch and decrease in sympathetic activity when not stretched. Uh, C, located in the renal vein and increase parasympathetic activity when not stretched. Um, and D, located in the carotids slash aortic arch and increase sympathetic activity when not stretched. So another It must be so hard to listen to this. Terrible. I, I, I think we're not going to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's either out. <laughs> 
Um, Live and learn. So <laughs> it's, it's an iterative process. So where are the baroreceptors? Um, so remember, we talked about the baroreceptors, and they are essentially uh, buttons. They're everything okay buttons. Yeah. So being pressed, you know, that means that you're being stretched out and you don't have much sympathetic activity coming through. And as soon as someone lets go of the every, everything's okay button, the sympathetic activity increases to cause vasoconstriction and salt retention and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're located in the carotid aortic arch, which makes sense because they're pretty close to where the heart is, so they can work out how much you know force is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not chance, you know, it's not like you're going to suddenly develop a huge stenosis in your ascending aorta, and then those won't work anymore. Mm-hmm. It makes sense because they're not going to be. Whereas if it was in a leg, mm-hmm. well, you might just have a stenosis in your femoral artery, and that thing is now a terrible sensor because mm-hmm. it has no idea what's going. On. I've never thought about that before. There you go. Well, the carotids have lots of stenosis. Then. Yeah. So, I don't know. That doesn't work so well. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so it's the everything's okay button. As soon as you let go, then that increases sympathetic activity. So the answer was D. D. When they're not stretched, you increase your sympathetic. And then if you stretch them particularly a lot, like with a stent, that'll further decrease the sympathetic activity. Completely ligate your sympathetic activity. Drop the blood pressure. Yeah, and your heart rate. Yeah. Okay, MCQ number five. God, how many of these are there? Um, <laughs> so, six. what causes or what does agonism activation of alpha-1 and alpha-2 receptors do? I'm not going to go through the MCQs. I'm just going to treat it as a short answer question. Okay. <laughs> as we said, iterative process. Um, so, as we said, alpha-1 is like drawing the drawstring of the alpha symbol. Um, so, agonism of alpha-1 increases blood pressure through vasoconstriction. And alpha-2, which is the opposite of 1, like all these receptors, decreases that process by decreasing noradrenaline. Yeah, and remember, noradrenaline is the one that triggers alpha receptors mainly, and adrenaline triggers beta. Yeah, yeah, it took yeah, me yeah. a long time to remember that. Okay, MCQ number 6. Oh, God, I think we're getting to the end here. Okay, so what binds to AT1, angiotensin 1 receptors? And what effect does it have? I was wondering whether I ruined it by saying angiotensin 1 receptor. Anyway, AT1 receptors. What what effect does that have? So this is slightly confusing, but angiotensin 2 is what binds to AT1 receptors. Um, AT1 receptors basically cause vasoconstriction. And probably have a causative role in atherosclerosis as well, but for the purpose of this, vasoconstriction. And like the other receptors, AT2 does the opposite of that. Yep. I actually had the wrong answer written down on here. <laughs> okay, God, that, uh, yeah, another long one. Um, sorry it took so long for us to make that one as well. Mm-hmm. That was not ideal, but that was really good, though. we'll Good try to be better. Davo, oh, we should celebrate this. Davo is officially a neurologist now. He has his letter, or is about to get about his letter. Yeah. So he's finished, uh, which means that now he's going to be the one driving a lot of the podcasts and getting <laughs> us all into action. So <laughs> hopefully... I mean, we're just like a bad partner. I'm just going to promise you something again that I'm just yeah, not going yeah. to deliver on. I'm a bad father. Like, yeah, we'll definitely make them monthly uh, next, or something. Next Christmas. Oh, by the way, I love it when people come up to me and say, hey, you know, for me conversation, it makes me feel good about myself. So please keep doing that. Right, well, I need that. Feed my ego. Do it. Reduce that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you soon for Hypertension Part 2 or some other random podcast that we do in the in between. All right, bye.